Yay. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. I am thrilled with our guest today. I could not have thought of anyone better for a combat episode. She is an absolute legend across many ecosystems. So you may know her as the founder of the DBO Network. She's also an Octopus ambassador, which makes her a field expertise in everything Octopus and the team's building on them. So without further ado, I am very excited to present Pandu. Hi, IVV. Thank you for having me. No, thanks so much for joining us, especially in such a short notice. It's uh, very exciting to actually talk to you again. Like we've been, we, we were at ETH Denver together and we had a long conversation while looking for a taco place, as I recall it. Remember that? ETH Denver was fascinating because it was basically a very similar theme or thread with lots of people that you feel like you know them because you've interacted a lot online. And right. then when you actually see them in person, it's like, oh my God, they're real. Um, so yes. <laughs> They're actually human beings and not like simulations or something. At some point you do wonder, especially with your track record of efficiency and productivity. But yeah, I remember very clearly the taco conversation. So we met at the Neo Lounge and we were looking for free food and we had what? <laughs> we had one hour to get food before yes. the Ilya talk. So we wanted to go there and come back to meet, you know, Daddy Ilya and, uh, I knew of a team that was hosting a free lunch and it seemed nearby. So we start walking and we get to the free taco place. I don't recall what we talked about on the way there. What I do recall is that I mentioned that some of the members of the team are actually quite young. They're like 16 and 17, which is like. Remember that. Yes. That's, that's what we talked about after. Oh, the members of the team are like 18 and 16. Okay. All right. The 18 year old coding prodigies. And then the, the joke, which is real, is the venue was called your mom's house. <laughs> so that, that explains a lot about the venue name, is what we said, right? But you're in. Yeah. Like probably the community manager 16 or 14 or something. That's, that was the And they look very young. Yeah. But I guess that's a really good segue to we have at least one more decade on experience on them. So we will get deep into, <laughs> what I get to specific, <laughs> we will get deeper into the projects that you're working on now. I'm just really curious to see how the journey started for you. So maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about like your background, you know, where you grew up, what you studied, like formal education. I know that you've got a bit of a corporate life that you resurface every once in a while as a reminder to people that it is possible to leave the corporate world but also that we are building something more meaningful. And there's like a mission and a vision on, on this side of the pond. Of course, this side of the pond. Yeah. From the dark side to the light side to Web3. Yeah, I used to work for IBM. That was six years with, with, with IBM. Uh, a lot of people thought I was like, the way IBMers call it, I was blue-blooded because IBM is big blue. So it's, if you're in IBM and you're like, you're going to be a lifer in IBM. A lot of people said that about me. Because I love the company so much because I was like learning a lot of things there. I really liked it. And I'm, I was in a technical role. That's why, like I was a technical solutions manager. I did, I was a senior consultant as well. And uh, this IBM is very interesting in terms of like technology that they're doing. Actually, like this is not turning into an IBM ad, but like we, 
quantum computing, uh, AI, like a lot of the things, news, a lot of the new nascent things uh, they, they're really conversant about. Like even blockchain, you have to admit, even though the corporate world isn't really doing the same type of blockchain as the crypto world is doing, they're probably the first one that actually, you know, put, put money into it, invested in the Linux foundation to build the Hyperledger. Uh, Fabric. Yeah. Anyway. It's interesting because it's really worth giving credit and mentioning some of IBM's history. Like in the long history of computing, they have had a massive role and they've definitely pushed the boundaries. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, probably people thought you were a good fit because for a very long time, if you were like passionate about technology and you wanted to be on the bleeding edge, you would go work for a company such as IBM, especially depending on which part of the world you are. Because I remember one of my friends, Dan, worked at IBM. And for me, it was just like massive. Like somebody in Venezuela working for this like large multinational company. And I think that the moment that they start losing their edge is when the corporate world and the corporate speak start saying things like, you can't go wrong with IBM or something like that. A lot of the marketing actually went wrong with IBM. And this is, this is not, a, this is not a formal opinion. Like this is something that I think, my, my opinions don't matter for IBM. Of course, I've loved IBM for a while, but the, the way they did marketing is like the way that they shouldn't, like they should have done, they should have focused on what they did best, which is the research department. They still, uh, until I left at least, they still had the most number of patents in the world yearly, not just because they're like 100 years old, but also because every year they got like new patents, new patents. Like it's a, uh, it's literally one of the, one of the best companies you can go for research. It's like almost like a university and, and yeah, I mean, and, but. Like before that, like even before like IBM, I was uh, sort of like the way I look what we have in current crypto, like people are speaking about metaverse, about like digital ownership and crypto. That was actually for me, it was during my time at IBM. So I, I entered IBM in 2011. 2011, IBM was doing this thing called Second Life. They were sponsoring Second Life. Well, oh, I did know that was, like, that was IBM. That's awesome. It was back in the time. I remember that. They have, a, they have an island of their own of, on Second Life, a massive island. Wow. And, uh, I was like super interested. And of course, I was one of the early adopters of Second Life, mainly probably because of IBM too. Like I would probably get around to it as well because I'm always very interested in virtual worlds. I've read Snow Crash very early. I've always been interested in that, but I guess I did accelerated my process of entering the metaverse sort of like. So 2012, I entered the metaverse and I was an IBMer just walking around. I, I remember my nickname actually had IBM in it. It was like, oh my like God, something. This it's is so like literally the plot for Ready Layer One. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I, wait. Oh my God. Have you not seen or read the book? I've, I've read the book, but is it? So in a nutshell, the book is placed in a dystopian future whereby there's a lot of struggle and despair in the world. But if you right. connect yourself to this online world, you can have an amazing life. So the main character lives in some slums and he's pretty yeah. big in this uh, online world. And the, I, the key I, of the I, plot is the sorry. owner of this world dies. Let's say Zuckerberg dies. And he lives embedded within the world like a game, like some riddles. And whoever cracks it inherits the entire world. So you suddenly have the OG people trying to like win and there's mm. this kid and this other randos around the world. And then this huge as fuck company, which sounds like you and IBM, they literally have entire floors oh, of employees yeah. and no, they all- I get the parallel though. I get the parallel. They all enter the metaverse and it's literally like the employee number walking around. And uh, Actually, AGB, you need to actually see my actual, I sent you the, like my avatar on Second Life. 
And my avatar on Second Life actually had an IBM badge. Oh he my God. It looks really yeah. hot as well. Looks really hot. Yeah. Uh, that's also, so let, let me try to show it to the audience. Because this is, this is. I'll, I'll make sure that I include in the notes and yeah. we'll share on the Twitter as well when we share the episode image. Literally an IBM Amazing. badge. Amazing. Insane. And, it's and I, I like it because I think that even though we're like focusing on the IBM time, it seems to like highlight just like a personality trait of being like very dedicated and very loyal to the projects that you're believing at the time. And I think that I'm starting to see some parallels with that kind of IBM level of passion and representation and what you're doing with Octopus now. I, I do want to go into the, the, the write-up that you send me for research, but I think that the trend, if I had to summarize it, is we're going from large companies pushing tech mostly for corporates to the decoupling of both who the end user is. We're, we're getting a long tail of technology now with more and more custom solutions for users. But also now the key question is the battle for who owns those systems. Yes. I found it fascinating. I thought it was very well structured. So yeah, I'll let you run with it. Tell me about the theory of recentricity. Is that what you call it? Decentricity. So I see that there's like, and this is an observation that is not a professional observation. I'm not a professional futurist or it's just something that I, I wrote up and said to you. But one of the things that I saw, there's always been cycles. And the cycles always actually goes either go towards the center or towards decentralization. And this is like cycles of technology, not even like just computing, but like technology as a whole. But if you study just computing technology, you can actually look at like the recentralization cycle by basically looking at how IBM started. IBM started with accounting machines and these are in like wooden boxes kept within businesses and uh, each business ran each processing node independently, and then they connect to each other indirectly through through like business transactions. So it's slow, but your data is independent. It's also sovereign. And then like in the late 1950s, we have mainframes, right? Mainframes, mini computers after, and they call it mini computers, but they still are super huge. Uh, some fill the size of the room. Um, and they're like tiny compared to the idea of them existing because there was nothing before it before. <laughs> exactly. So that, that was a very monolithic time and monolithic is of course centralized. Everything is centralized in one place. And then the PC revolution, right? In the 1980s, people network with each other and everyone was using their own personal computers. And they have, we have, I don't know, Telnet, IRCs, BBS. And although they, they, those weren't our, what we would think about as decentralized, but they are actually are, they're just not, they're just not synchronized to each other, but they're decentralized as in you can spin up your own IRC server. You can spin up your own BBS, right? You can federate with other IRC servers and uh, create a network together, for example. That's already, the, like all of these things are very libertarian, very decentralized. And then enterprise internet in the 1990s, right? Uh, a lot of companies are investing and actually doing, creating like their own servers, initiating their own servers. And that's still the case in a lot of the current infrastructure, if we're talking about financial infrastructure, so banks, et cetera. And the backbone basically becomes something that is the sort of like when this becomes pulled into all of these infrastructures, it becomes more centralized as in you have the Facebook, you have Instagram, you have all of these other services that provide web services that are centralized to them. I actually think you're spot on when you start to see very similar narratives or observations happening in different places. So the first time that I read about this was in 2018, I read The Master Switch by mm -hmm. Tim Wu. 
And he does an excellent job at documenting several of the technological revolutions and basically how with each new wave, there's always like an incumbent that yep. sees threat in that technology. And it's not really like a societal threat, but they will mm. present it that way in order to put in regulation to stop the technology. And I just find mm. it fascinating because these cycles are exactly the same, even though we're not familiar with them because we were not around. And I recall the one where he talks about the radio. Like, can you believe that back in the day, having a radio and sending radio signals was illegal? And there was a cap on how many radio stations you could have. And there were very strong monopolies on radio stations. And that's when the AM, FM split happens. And it's just fascinating that there were groups of what would probably be called extremists or domestic terrorists today that literally banded together to teach each other how to set up radio stations and to set up like little underground connections between themselves. So I think that it is possible to extrapolate that. Even if you look at the TV, cable news, now we have the streaming platforms, like the cycle just keeps on going. What I find fascinating is that it's not just that we can see it in the commercial world and I guess like the commentators in those spaces identifying them. I think we're starting to see more and more everyday people that perhaps without having the words for it or the frameworks, they're starting to realize that there are some patterns and they may not necessarily like them. And I think that the name of the book is pretty accurate as far as a master switch. You know, if you were to determine whether something is centralized or decentralized, is well, does someone have the power to just shut it off or to control it in a specific way, push a narrative or whatever the case may be for each platform. Absolutely love your writing. I'm going to share it. There's a big quote, which is probably going to be the quote for the actual episode. Centralized power absolutely corrupts the center, which is an iteration and an improvement, I believe, <laughs> on the well-trotted absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I think that, yeah, introducing those notions of center and decentralized are very relevant. So AVV, look at this. It's, it's a radio. I'm decent. I, so that's like one of the things, right? All technologies are radios. And, and even when we were looking at like cloud technologies now, because like it's dominated by Google, by Amazon, we use all those services. There is a danger that there, there's a danger in actually letting the infrastructures of our lives basically be mediated by just like large companies. And that's talking about infrastructure. That's also talking about experiences that we have. I think that the challenge is. The more powerful the technology gets, the more complex, which means we don't actually understand how it works. But the more centralized that complex technology becomes, by the way, we want complexity equals a better lifestyle uh, and better outcomes in general. But the more complex it gets, then you have centralized players coming in and simplifying it for people. And that's where the gap is. If we don't understand that in the simplification process, they're capturing all the value in the middle, like for instance, the cloud marketing is fucking great. And the way that we're going, and I and I, we have very interesting views on transhumanism. Let's please, please dive into that next. The way that we're going, I realized that having serverless information available everywhere, call, calling it the clouds was not an accident. Like I see now that these cloud servers where we're going to essentially exist into mortality this is the heaven. This is the, we, these companies are the gods. Like we're going in that direction. That's where we transcend. Perhaps drawing some parallels between having your information in the cloud will be the same as you own your house, you have your right. servers that you control, <clears throat> or you living on a rented property from a yeah. landlord. 
that is very powerful. Like at any one time you can get kicked out or at any one time they can decide what to do with that infrastructure. So it's very feudal interesting system. to see. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like feudal system, right? You're paying to, to a land baron and the land baron is now like the Googles and Amazons of the world, which is like one of the things that we, we really need to do is to ensure that our solutions are like deployable anywhere, like with our current hardware devices. I think like the stuff in Near, I think I, 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 I like what the, the boys are doing at Croncat, for example, like you can deploy it on a Raspberry Pi. And that's the sort of like the thing that I'm trying to do with Myriad as well. Unless there's no just, just before we jump into that one, I'm just really curious to find out and we, we can give them a bit of a shout out as we're talking about cloud servers and the risk of being centralized like that. I'm really curious to know the hosting providers that you're using for the website that you sent me the write-up. Because when you click on it, you see a really, you see a really interesting ad that says this is hosted on feminist servers, and they give you like coordinates, and then it must be in Tasmania because it honors the traditional owners of the land in Tasmania, which is something that I'm very familiar yeah. with because I live in Australia, and I just found it fascinating that it's this could be like a like a rebellion server catering for people who don't want to be part of. The main cloud. Okay. So this is actually a lot of people will probably like when I send that to people, a lot of people actually laugh at it, but like, actually, at least it's not on, like, I don't want to punch it. I think it is a natural human instinct to laugh things. Like even when somebody falls, you may laugh. So I don't necessarily think that laughter is associated with a dismissive or a non-serious issue. I think it is a right sign of it creating a reaction. Like people notice we, this is different. This is what they pay attention to. I maybe giggled a little bit as well. When you open it, it does say that it's hosted on a feminist server. It's hosted at this coordinates. And uh, I think, I, I, I actually think that's cool. Like, you know exactly that this is not hosted by big tech. This is actually hosted by, by this server. Mom and mom shop in yeah. Tasmania. Yeah. If you click through, I think you'd be able to see like where it is, I think. I think that remembers that feature. But this is actually part of like, the group is called Econometologies. Economythologies, which like economic mythologies group, basically. And uh, I participated in one of their events. Uh, they did a lot of things, actually. Uh, crypto is part, is just like one part. Of it. There's uh, other things that they did also. Everything that's related to like how we are building like the myths of economy, the myths that shape economy, because like e economics is just like mythologies made real. So that's where they did it. That's where they hosted it. That's the, that's a university in, in Australia. That, that actually was, oh, you're from Australia. So I forgot the name of the university that hosted them. Anyway, well, yeah, there's one, that's a quite a tangent, but, but yeah, I'm really, I think Web3 is one thing basically. Like Web3 is of course the experiential stuff, the stuff that's related to users, communities, building communities, self-ownership of everything by communities. We also need to think about basically the infra part of, of Web3, of crypto. Um, hundred percent. And I think it is a little bit of a tangent, but it is also the perfect segue because I love how clean the logic in your article is. Like, look, from the 1920s, there is this trend. We're living in an era where there is such a strong accumulation of power in the information era that is presenting some issues. And we don't want to get political, but those issues are manifesting in stronger and stronger ways. Yep. But then just to draw the point home and make it extremely clear, you go the next stage into the future, which is the way that the computing is developing now, we will be interchangeable with computers or the way that you describe it, our brain substrate will be upgradable into okay. systems yes. 
anytime. That's crazy. But we've got Neuralink already. And if it can be done once, it will be replicated and commodified. So the real question is, and maybe because it gets so personal, it literally gets in you <laughs> because it gets so personal. It's easy to see how if we're going to have literally all of our data, like all of our existence on a, a system or, or, or a cloud, well, who owns it and who has control over it? Because information is probably going to be like bi-directional. It's <laughs> not just upload, but we'll download as well. And so I think that when you put it in those terms, it's extremely clear that you realize, okay, infrastructure a hundred percent matters. Who owns it, who controls it, who has access to it. That opens up the gates to blockchain, Bitcoin since 2008. They've been trying to intermediate all, all the banking system uh, to bank the unbanked. But now we have more and more powerful blockchains. So here is a decentralized computing platform, which was the definition that I loved recently. And I guess we can mention really briefly that I feel like Nier has the user experience to onboard the masses, but also the capability to scale. But more specifically, I would love if you could explain to me, like I'm a five-year-old, what the DBO network is, and then we can probably also have the opportunity to introduce the Octopus network because you are the first guest from the Octopus network on the podcast. So right. I suspect there are going to be a lot more people looking for parachain solutions and Octopus would be a great fit for them. So I hand over the floor to you. All right. So the bio network is the decentralized bio network and uh, it's modeled upon basically building bioinformatics and bi biomedical blockchain that focuses on anonymity. So here's the thing. <clears throat> when you go to places such as 23andMe, Ancestry.org and other personal genetic testing companies, you are relinquishing control of your DNA to these companies, which, you know, is probably in their TNC. So that's probably okay. That's probably perfectly legal. But the thing is, like, a lot of these companies actually use your genes to do research. And the research basically are multi-million dollar, perhaps multi-billion dollar research, especially like if it's related to COVID or our current pandemic. And it doesn't, this is, this has been an ongoing problem and this is not just, it's not new. If you look up HeLa cells, uh, Henrietta Lacks cells, those are cells that were back in the fifties harvested for, from a woman with ovarian cancer, I believe. And uh, the, those cells kept on replicating and became a cell line and then was monetized from that one sample. And the money basically never flowed back. The value never flowed back to uh, the woman's family. Until, I don't know, in the 1990s or in the 2000s, early 2000s, I forgot. I, I'm pretty deep into the, in the, into the biohacking movement. And I guess that the topic can really be approached from two different ways, and it is going to resonate with people differently. One would be around the risks of having your data out there and how some people could use it nefariously. So for instance, if you were to put on a conspiracy theory hat and you wanted to create a virus to cause havoc around mm -hmm. the world, having a highly centralized database with information from people all over the world yeah. would be very valuable. On the other hand, it's always in the fairness of if we're all contributing to advancing humanity by having databases that can yield new medicines, new treatments, there is some fairness into the people that contribute towards that to maybe get some benefits. So I should take into account that the people that will probably use those medicines or treatments in the future will probably have to pay an arm and a leg to access the, the treatment. So there's the two angles there. I think that overall, and I follow a few companies in the biohacking space, they do got biome testing and I'm looking at the research that they're coming up with the, the specialized treatment based on the individual. 
it's just the information the algorithms are throwing by being able to aggregate so many people's code biome. There's 100% the benefit there. And the companies are very open in saying that there are benefits to that aggregation. So I the guess ag- it, the, the, the key question is, can the aggregation be done in a way that is decentralized or yes. accessible to more people? All right. This is, this is actually a very good question. So the, the way the bio does things is that if you are sending your samples physically to a lab and the lab is collaborating with us, then the results of that samples, including like the genomic, the whole genome sequencing data, for example, you can only be the only one who can access it. But the next step of this is if you want to monetize, basically you want to monetize from your, uh, from your data set. If it's WGS data, whole genome sequencing, then you can basically uh, relinquish your data, basically sell your data, put it inside like a bucket filled with similar data, like all of the WGS data as an aggregated whole. And that aggregated data set is sold like from through the data marketplace mechanism. So you can basically buy ERC-20 standard data token. The ERC-20 standard data token, once people buy it, they don't really download that data set. This is key. What they do is you are allowed access to the data and you are allowed to send in algorithms to run on the data. This is what we call privacy computing. So there is uh, the data that is once, once when the algorithms are run on the data and the reports are sent back in a way, again, that, is, that does not relinquish like, the entire data set. So it is still decentralized. There is still, uh, there's still a bit of option stuff there happening by rights because we do need to have like computations done on top of the data. And uh, that's something we're still figuring out. But the data, the aggregated data set is, First of all, it has no KYC, everything's aggregated. And only uh, like when you buy the data, you don't actually receive download uh, of the data. You cannot download yeah. the data, but you can run operations on top. I've got the entry level knowledge of Python, okay. but that is one of the concepts I'd be really fascinated with when it comes to near because, uh, yeah. you know, access level keys, it's something that is new to me, but the more applications that I use, the better understanding that I get. So for instance, I like that every time that I log into a decentralized application, you can actually see what permissions you're granting. Yep. And at least on year, you can actually have a very limited scope. The application may be able to query your balance, but it can't transfer uh, coins. Yep. You Everything- perform a transfer, you have to approve it manually afterwards. So it, it's interesting to see how you can actually have very tailored use cases that the user can control or I guess if you were to flip it because look in reality when you think of a customer journey and user experience no one actually wants to control the data no one knows what the fuck it means no one knows the risks but when you flip it and you try to pull I guess like controls or limits on what people on the other hand what the companies can do with the data if you have to ask for the permission if you have to ask for consent if it has to be treated in a limited way by design yeah then I think that's where the where the potential is yeah, I think another way to like to to focus on some sometimes you centralize even though your platform is decentralized, but your services are still centralized. As in, I've seen several like other than the bio, I've seen actually several bioinformatics projects that sprouted up, but they are actually creating their own lab. It's like a single lab in the middle that where you know this one person, there's one company managing it, and that is actually recentralizing everything again. That's why the bio is actually permissionless. We at the bio we want to have multiple labs. It's been Honestly, slow going, whereas we've all, uh, only onboarded like around two labs. So, but we are open to have like labs collaborate with us from all over the world and uh, genetic consultants as well. If you're a bioinformatician, you can be part of I think uh, you can... maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm trying to grasp here with some context. Perfect. I think 
having a decentralized system that has a centralized component perhaps would be the same as having a public transport system whereby anyone can access a train, but the train must be operated by one person. And there's a limited amount of operators on the train network. The opposite would probably be another example of public infrastructure around highways. Somebody built the highway, but anyone can use it. We're, we're, here's the thing. We're, we're, we created the highway. We created like the sort of the pipeline of data. We've created the uh, way you can interact as a lab, you can interact as a user. And we're actively onboarding labs and actively onboarding users. But we're like the highway that is built. Uh, we're not the train. So we're not a lab, actually. Um, so, so if you help me visualize the customer journeys and maybe we can narrow it down a little bit, say I'm a biohacker and I'm really excited to say, upload my data from my sure. ketogenic diet or whatever supplements that I take. And we want to have biohackers of the world unite. We want to have accessible databases with real data. So I guess that would be the, the end user side. And I guess that on the other side, say I'm in Mexico city right now. The regulations are low, money goes a long way. We can onboard some labs here. What would be the steps required for the users to sign up? I guess you could tell it to me and say, I've got five friends. And what would be the role that the lab would be performing? Okay. There are several services available. If you already have genetic data, your own genome from 23andMe, for example, if you already have that and you want to upload that, that DNA data set and you want to get more insights on it, you can already do that on our platform. You log in with your wallet and create an account. And then what you need to do is you need to take a number of the bio to basically put in like the, and then upload the, the data into, into the DeBio platform. Then once that is uploaded, you can choose uh, a genetic analyst. So a genetic analyst that you choose is usually an, in addition to basically like any of the analytics that you've already had previously from 23andMe, maybe want to check for genetic markers. That Fun fact, I ran a 23andMe study okay. and I am more indigenous American than Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm joking. I've, I've never done a genetic testing, but I'm pretty sure I would score higher than her. Pretty much anyone alive would. <laughs> okay. Now, go back to the, to the topic. Sorry. I, I just couldn't hold that one. Okay. I don't think you see in the video. I was like smiling a lot and I was like, I have to share this. So you get like, then you get like services, right? Like the genetic consultant does not know your name. He or she only knows your, basically your, your data set, your genome. And uh, you never meet or him or her. And then they basically just send back the report. And the report is sent back in a way that is sovereign to you. Now, to you can basically even send like your data to multiple genetic consultants on the platform. I'm just really curious about the data standards. Because I see, look, I'm not going to lie. I, I participated in the DeepIO token sale. Okay. I just love supporting basically everyone launching on, on the new protocol. But I didn't actually did, did much research into it. I'm now providing some some liquidity, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, I haven't really, I guess, done as much homework as I should have. But what I'm really wondering is about like the data standards, because as we speak, I see massive opportunity. Basically, that in the same way the traditional blockchain tries to bank the unbanked, I think that this could have an amazing potential to provide health services to people that have been locked out of it. So for instance, if I could get my parents to do, say, a, a full a full sample blood tests in Venezuela, upload it to the network, and then have, say, functional doctors 
wherever they may be in the world, look into it. That could be huge. And once again, like I'm looking at it from like the end user perspective and I'm a biohacker. So I've lived the pain point of you go to your local service providers and they're very siloed. Different areas of medicine don't really talk to each other and different doctors just don't really understand what you're doing or which is like outright encourage you not to do it. So I think that if you could have the local testing, because obviously it has to be performed on a body, but once the data exists, aggregated to have better data and be able to connect it with people that are practicing in that field, I think that'd be massive. Yep. That's like the, the bottleneck to all these things is actually onboarding the physical to digital bridge. How do you onboard like uh, physical data, which is the genetic samples, buckle swabs into and, and into digital without actually doxing you, without compromising your name by, by keeping you anonymous. That's actually why we won ETH Denver last year, our, the hackathon. We, the way we solve that is quite unique. Labs can onboard, users can onboard, users can send to the lab a physical sample if they're like near within the same location. No name on the envelope, just a code. Basically that code is used by the lab to basically onboard. That sample becomes a digital sample and is sent back through IPFS, but encrypted first with the user's public key. So since it's asymmetric in, uh, encryption, then since it's encrypted by the user's public key, only the user can decrypt it. Uh, there's probably like a nice chart with this somewhere, but I, I'm just trying to understand where in the chain it's important to maintain privacy. Okay, several steps. The The first step in the sort of like the normal flow is basically getting a, a lab that's collaborating with Bio to basically sequence your genes or sequence or, or do testing on you. Or I don't know, do HIV tests, for example, which are always like something that you want to do in secret, for example. Whether you have HIV or not, just doing the test might be a stigma in some countries. So uh, you send over the sample, you send over whatever you have, and then people do testing on it, like the labs do testing on it without actually seeing your name. That anonymizing layer, that like VPN for your biomedical data is actually quite important because that controls like the rest of the, the data flow. If you can trace back the name to like the, if you initially put in KYC, if there's any part of like the pipeline where your KYC is entered, then your the entire data set is no longer anonymous. So uh, that's why I think that privacy is actually important from like the beginning, like from the outset, from the actual generation of the digital data, from basically the, the physical samples. But of course, if you already have a data set that you've already gotten from 23andMe, that's your data set. I imagine that the other issue would be like data integrity. Because yeah. for instance, if you have someone's biomarkers, whatever it is that you're looking into, their age, gender, weight, if they're taking any medications, like there's going to be a lot of variables that you do want to be able to correlate with those specific biomarkers, especially well, looking at aggregating data for like further treatments. Yeah, there's a self-reported element to that. Okay, so let me finish the flow. During the initial flow, just to onboard the data from physical to digital, that is that data is not aggregated. It's something that you, it's only owned by you. It's not even shared like nurses their reports uh, are something that you just receive and then you just receive that report. but like on the second phase like in the second the second step of this once you actually have your data you can basically sell your data into like the data platform so the data marketplace and once you do you are actually asked to self-report so you can self-report yourself uh, from a gender perspective race there are several lists of questions that you can answer of course, you can decide not to answer. If you really don't want to dox yourself, that is possible. It's just that that data wouldn't be as valuable because it would be and might not be used by the people who use the data. 
So once you put all of those in, you have the phenotypes, all everything that's self-reported as well. Anyone who actually accesses the data, buys the data, the value basically flows back to you because uh, they bought the data. Do you see an opportunity for companies to basically partner with the buyer and be almost like that onboarding layer? Like hypothetically, let's say I launch a VP biohackers gang <laughs> and we can basically create those data standards for people to get their information from local okay. apps and then upload it in an anonymous way. I, uh, I would say, here's the thing, like that would be very possible and there are multiple ways to do it. One is uh, what if you already have services, like if you already have the ability to do some services, like one type of service is of course like the, the sequencing and then like that part of the, basically the, what we call the physical bridge is basically just sequencing and then creating uh, a PDF file and then creating a genetic report. So. If you can do that, you can basically uh, onboard on our platform as a little app that is a customer-facing one. So uh, you can basically directly sell your services to the people in your area. That's one alternative. The second alternative is if you have genetic consultants. So you don't have the what work capabilities, for example, but you can take a look at the genome and see that, oh, this biomarker, that biomarker, this is what we determine to be like the what this implies. And then you write up a report and then send it back. You can onboard as a genetic analyst. That is also possible. That is something that we can do at the moment. At the moment, we don't have it in the application. It's, to, to be frank, that's something that needs to be done manually at the moment. If you want to basically onboard your data into the platform, we don't have that yet. But it's something that we would be willing to discuss if you already have a data set that we can utilize. So for instance, what I'm thinking is, I there were a few talks at December around like decentralized you know, medical research. <clears throat> As we know, with medical research, there's always a problem also of who's funding it. Could be big pharma, big food with big milk, big meat, big veggies. What I'd be interested in doing is there's a lot of people that I follow, for instance, that may be into keto, into fasting. Like they've got well-identified communities of people that are doing, I guess, like a lot of spread, but they're adopting certain lifestyles or taking certain supplements, whatever the case may be. It would be amazing if that cohort could be identified or think of it as a data bucket. Sure. And then basically make the information available or I guess aggregate information. So for instance, I say, look, out of the hundred people mm. that started on January 1st on the carnivore diet, they got blood samples every, whatever, four weeks. Yes. And these are all their results. So that's what I'm saying about that, that potential layer for, it'd be like, like a top of the funnel for DBIO yeah. that would basically identify the community identify the variables by which they're going to be entering into the study, so to speak. And then it would be harder for them to connect with their community and give them guidelines like, hey, these are the labs where you can get the, the blood samples or get these and these blood samples and then give information to us and we upload to DeepIO. It's, a, it's actually something that we, like, uh, we've done something similar. with. We did this research last year. It's in the DeBio blogs. Go to blog.debio.network. But this is based on the, there's a gene that, that basically determines your dosage uh, for TBC medicine, tuberculosis. If you if you ever get tuberculosis, there's two types of doses that you. If you have this gene, you get this dose. You have you don't have this gene, then you don't. Yeah, you need a lesser dose uh, or something. So it's it's something that we did with the university needed to sample. I think it was like just uh, a few patients. I forgot how many, but like uh, a few patients needed to be sampled in a way that is anonymous. So they basically used they used the bio like a VPN. Basically, so uh, everything is in uh, all the interactions. It's through DBIO. Everything is with the DBIO system. Like basically they send, of course they send via mail, like 
to anonymize. They use just the DeBio sample notation. Then the labs also upload via DeBio. So that's something we've already done. Actually, there's also results from the report. So if it's this drug, ion, uh, isoniazid, is uh, some people are uh, more predisposed towards the slow metabolism of it. And uh, if you have that gene, then you need a lesser dose. So it's pharmacogenomics, personalized medicine based on genetic data. But we did it in the context of research. I would 100% take this offline. I'm really excited uh, to follow this through because the typical experience with a biohacker is you spend a ton of time learning about how the body works. And then you spend a little time looking to the variables of like your day to day. And then you start to modify things. Normally you start taking things out, things that are unhealthy, such as sugar and stimulants. Then you start adding healthier things in meditation, exercise, and then you start going the extra mile with supplementation further and further out of the yeah. box treatment. So what's the box treatment? What kind of stuff what is do you take? Oh, this is whole separate podcast. But what's fascinating is that even like basic things like fasting, it's, this has been very well researched. I'm doing it. I'm seeing the results and there's people that tell you that it's not true or that it's not possible. So I think that there's definitely a lot of scope for having more data because once again, like normally the problem with biohacking and I guess with conspiracy theories is that you're aggregating data. So it's like, hey, we know these about fasting. So then I'm going to implement it in my life. Based on those knowledge, I'm going to draw these conclusions. And that's the whole point about biohacking. Like you're constantly testing to see what works for you. Each body can behave differently. So I think that it could be a lot of benefit is like aggregating this data, not so much to prove people wrong, but advance the field. Especially yeah. if you could create like preemptive data sets that you can measure against and it gives like an optimal treatment. And it's like a quantum leap in, in healthcare, health prevention, which is really the aim here. Yep. I think like this is, we want to have the bio be an infrastructure for this. And I think the biohacker movement requires something like this that is not going back to just getting your genes tested in 23andMe. Again, like uh, we don't want to have recentralization. That phrase again, that control. Something really important. You can see it in the context of HIV. You can see it in the context of tuberculosis and you can a hundred percent see it in the context of biohacking because by the pure nature of it, you may be experimenting with things that are maybe not legal or the highly regulated in your jurisdiction. So it's how can I provide medical data? This is what's happening with my body right now, but you don't want it to be tracked to you because Look, there are strong interests out there. Like most regulators don't give a shit about your health, but they care about enforcing the same laws and regulations that have been in place for decades. So there's definitely a lot of potential there for unleashing that health movement. Yes. That holding people yes. back because there is a lot of stigma for the people doing it. Like you asked me what I'm taking. I'm not going to tell you public. Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I should get sponsored by the the Mexican people. Last night I discovered that there is mezcal infused with marijuana and mezcal infused with the mushrooms. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Okay. I have not taken it. I'm going to Oaxaca <laughs> next week. Next week podcasts are going to be bombed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, if it goes well, I'll start paying people to fly to Oaxaca to do a mezcal mushroom infused podcast. Haka. You you'll be like the blockchain Joe Rogan with with this DM. That's the right? maybe if I a little bit of it. I think we're definitely gonna be continuing the conversation with DBIO. I love that with these conversations they're like time stamped. So we gotta look mm -hmm. back in a year's time and be like, wow, a lot of the things that we were talking about as ideals or as challenges, look how much we've advanced. Now, Dubai has been developed and hosted on the Octopus Network. So I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into why Octopus Network. And I, lo I love this conversation. It's almost like threefold. Obviously, it proves the capability of Dubai to grow and scale mm -hmm. into the future, even though it has a decentralized component. It proves or I guess introduces the concepts as to why Octopus Network could be good for other projects looking for a home. And the fact that Octopus Network is deployed on top of Near also really highlights just how powerful <clears throat> Near is as a network. It gives us a bit of a glimpse of what we can expect in the future. I'm actually the founder of the Octopus Guild, and I'm the first option on the Octopus Network with Vivayo. And I also advise Myriad, which is the second option on the, the reason shout that- Shout out to Myriad. Shout out to Myriad. Uh, Myriad. Yeah. Honestly, we I actually chose Substrate first. So we chose to be on Substrate uh, first before we chose to be on Octopus. As in, we started last year with Ethereum, coding everything on Ethereum. And then like we decided that in terms of, you know, what we're trying to do is not optimized enough because we're only coding a smart contract for, and Ethereum has a lot of problems that we all know. So which, which that is a very common path for most startups. But I, what I've been telling people and what I'm bullish about Near is it is a place where you can actually build a company. You can build a startup. It's not just a project with some tokens. Right. And in the past, the reason why people were skeptical about blockchain is because if you had a real business, you go to YC and you go to Amazon cloud, like real businesses mm -hmm. that need to scale and have users were not able to operate on the blockchain space. So if you were to explain to me substrate like I'm five, I'd be really interested to see how the thinking evolves from Ethereum over to substrate. Then give me a quick overview of the existing substrate options and then how we eventually end up with Octopus. Sure. Sure. The reason we chose substrate is because we wanted to optimize the entire stack, not just smart contract layer, because we are doing something that is quite different, especially with the bio, because we're handling biological data, massive uh, sets of biological data and many kinds of biological data too. We decided to research Substrate. We basically managed to port our Ethereum prototype into Substrate in about 60 days, two months. And we managed to get that on Substrate. It's all a matter of optimization, how to optimize, how we can ensure that all of our models work within the platform, within in a decent, as decentralized a way as possible. But once we've done that, and we tried looking into the Polkadot Kusama ecosystem, we just, we realized basically, and a lot of people just realized then that even with the, basically crowd loans get really prohibitive in terms of like from a commercial perspective. What does that mean? Yeah. So if you want to basically get a parachain on top of on top of Polkadot or Kusama, you need to get a crowd loan, which is basically getting the crowd to stick tokens at you, basically to support your project. To stake either the Polkadot or the Kusama. Yeah, this is what we're locking for you. This is what we're locking for this project, basically. No, the uh, Polkadot and Kusama have limited parachains, so this could be limited. quite price prohibitive, especially the more Thank successful that a project gets. You can basically yeah. see how they are likely to get extorted because right. you don't want to lose your power chain slot. And yeah, it's, yeah. it creates so, some nightmarish scenarios going forward. It's very nightmarish. And Kusama used to be like, it was supposed to be like the startup option, 
the enterprise option is Polkadot. That's the way they, they designed it. But even Kusama uh, became very expensive because, again, because of the limited parachain slots and everyone's fighting over that, the, the parachain slots. Which is a fascinating observation because now Octopus has what I think it's a very smart and appropriate approach to marketing, which is a cheap place to launch your project and then you can graduate to Polkadot afterwards. So you're not really locking people into either ecosystem. You really lower the barriers, especially the mental barriers for living Polkadot aside, which you may have been developing feelings for a long time. And yeah, it just makes it, it just focuses on the accessibility and the the, the developing now. Yeah, you can set up your own, we don't call it parachains, we call them app chains, but they're like the same principle. And because Octopus is built on Nier uh, and uh, Nier has sharding capabilities, which are amazing, like the validators are coded in in smart contracts on Nier, basically. So that's like how it gets that capability of having unlimited app chains, equivalent of parachains. That's something that, that Polkadot wouldn't be able to do with current conditions because like that's how they're differently designed. and. From an economics perspective, there's a main, the the value for money is maintained, so to speak. It's fascinating because I guess that is a massive advantage that both Aurora has over over EVMs and Mm. Octopus has over traditional substrate. By being built on top of Nier, they inherit Nier's scalability. So as many shards as needed will be spun out to support these networks on top. But also you don't have to worry about security. So it's yeah. almost like you're hiring the security from the underlying network, which makes it much more affordable and much more secure, especially during the early stages. They're like a- abstract concepts to me because I don't get the, the in-depth technical, but I can see it in a very clear way how this near mainnet and then anything on top just leverages that to, you know, abstract some of the complexity and just empower people to keep building more and more. Yeah, I think that's that's key. That's the genius of Nier. That's that's why I'm quite certain that Nier will host a lot of a lot of models in the future. Like this is this is like just the beginning of this. This is gonna be like the new mother chain, basically. Everything's gonna be on top of this. And we can still code directly on Nier. I have my other project, Reality Chain, is actually not on Octopus, it's actually directly on Nier because we just need one staking smart contract. It's less complicated. We didn't need like the entire stack. So we uh, the entire stack. Can you break out what are the components of the stack? The, if we were to ask differently, if I'm thinking of developing an application on a centralized network, what would be like the deciding criteria, the boxes to take to decide whether I do it on your mainnet oh, or okay. whether maybe an app chain on Octopus would be more suitable for me? Yeah, it's recording. And we are back. So if you're still listening, this may be a miracle. We've had some technical issues. Battery is running, uh, laptop's running out of battery. And we actually don't know if the recordings for the first half been saved. So yeah, if you're still with us, I hope that you enjoy this moment as much as we are because it's been very stressful times. All right. So you were asking me about chains, choosing between app chains and uh, yeah. regular smart contracts. If you have any, any rule of thumb like deciding criteria for when would you have an app chain versus when would you have just a near native chain. And I think you were also going to mention the full stack components. The rule of thumb is that if you can build it just on a smart contract, then you don't need an app chain. As in, if you can only, you can build it just with the app logic and without actually having related to the optimization of the business processes or optimization for your business process, I should say, then you might only need as much. But if you want to optimize the entire stack, which is basically app logic, the runtime underneath it, 
the consensus underneath it and the governance further underneath it. And you want to have that customizable in a way that is like, that fits you, like you don't have off the shelf or doesn't fit like your host chain, uh, then uh, you need to build an app chain. So that's like this substrate uh, way of doing things, of course, but the first laws are prohibitive. So hypothetically, if I had an app idea and I actually don't know whether I need to optimize business logic because I'm not technical, would approaching you or someone from the Octopus team be a good place to try to ascertain what will be best? I know that there are currently some very generous incentives for the next 10 or 20 app chains in terms of funding from the Octopus network team, foundation, technical support. But I'm guessing that obviously that doesn't mean that every idea that approaches it has to be the app chain. And I like that mm. even though you do have an app chain and you're an Octopus ambassador and leader of the guild, you were able to identify that reality chain doesn't need to be an app chain. Hence, it mm. goes down to near me. That I think there's the thing. I, I think I've always tried to be agnostic in terms of the technologies that I choose. We're all, and that's what I like about near because it's, it has EVM with Aurora. It has Substrate with Octopus and it has near. This is like, this is a, this thing has the potential to build a lot of things on top of, including protocol layers. That's why I'm very attracted to what you're used to me. But yeah, I'm agnostic. I think it's the most important thing. Some people maybe have been guilty of it at times, but it's easy to get caught up on the, the technology layer and not really think two steps ahead with how can people actually use this? Like what does the customer journey look like? Most products out there, even if they have a really ambitious vision and whatnot, they're just unusable. But also how does it scale? Because if you build something usable, that's going to break when you hit 20 people using it. It's also a problem. Are there any other octopus app chains that you're excited about right now? Anything you want to plug? I love what Unique One is doing. I also love what Atocha is doing. I guess I've been exposed to those two. I'm not sure about the others, but there are a lot of uh, app chains that are upcoming. The ones that I've personally been exposed to are going to be the first gaming app chain. It's a puzzle game platform. Unique One is an NFT marketplace. And uh, it's a multi-chain NFT marketplace. It is currently on Ethereum plus uh, BSC plus Polygon. And uh, it's headed into Near. And uh, with Octopus, it's, I think it's trying to address a lot of the multi-chain stuff. So just to be very transparent, I used to be like an NFT curator for them when they're uh, on. So I help them curate NFTs. I help them with their metaverse strategies. And of course they partner with me with reality chain, but I don't have a lot of the details on what they're on their tech stack. I do know that they're using the EVM capabilities of Octopus. So CVM on Octopus, I think it's a, it's an interesting addition to the ecosystem. I would like to see more of those multi-chain things, right? I like some of the multi-chain plays because I feel it's like a really good top of the funnel. They're existing on Ethereum and they expand it to near or its related ecosystem. It automatically places our tech stack in front of their users. There's obviously the question that people ask is why would they expand there? There must be something of value there for them to go. And if you have a brand that you already trust, it may be your first experience on the new chain. So I think it's actually really good for adoption. You and I have been here for a long time and it was, I guess, I didn't think about it then, but in hindsight, it was much more challenging to be on the near isolated ecosystem while everything else was blowing up. Like mm. now that we're much more interconnected, there's bridges, there's well-known brands expanding here. There's mm. very strong, like native projects growing rapidly. And some of the trends that I've noticed is, is a lot of Solana people and capital entering through near native NFTs. 
Yes. And there's a lot of mostly Ethereum capital and users, but even other EVM players, since Phantom and Avalanche entering through. Yeah, something to keep in mind is that never assume someone's knowledge. You know, they may have been in the ecosystem for a year or more like you and I, or they may be completely new. And you really have to like introduce and reiterate some of the concepts, like why we're bullish, what we're building. But also just remember that every interaction that we have with someone can shape their lives or leave an impression. So I guess that's part of the purpose of this podcast to capture some of those stories and hopefully get them to reach as many people as possible. So if you are happy, I'd love to learn more about how can we get more people involved in the Web3 world? Yeah. And I guess specifically, I don't know, we don't have too many rock star boss girl women like you. <laughs> how can we encourage more? How can we get more people from the corporate world to come build in Web3? There's opportunities available for all types of professions that weren't available there before. And maybe even how can we get more people in developing countries and I grew up in Venezuela, you grew up in Indonesia. I know that Indonesia is actually doing quite well with yep. a few projects. And it is a very large country with a lot of young people. So I'd love to know your views on those three. Maybe we can take it one by one. Okay. Yeah. Let's start with gender. You and, you and Rim, power couple, now have two moms. I love it. <laughs> yeah. My, me and Rim. Anyway. Moving <laughs> on. Edit it out. Hi, Rim. Okay. I, I came from the tech space, right? Like before, before blockchain, before crypto even did. And IBM, it's a, it's big tech. I, and IBM actually did a lot of things uh, about getting women on board and they had a well, female CEO for years and years, but it's still like a boys club, not IBM itself probably, but like big tech. Like, so big tech has always been dominated by women. So these topics of getting women into big tech, uh, into the space that is not just in crypto, that is actually also happening in big tech. But the difference is, I think crypto, actually crypto is a lot better compared to big tech, compared to the big tech ecosystem, actually. Because the big tech ecosystem, women, but they're mostly just, just there to be like the salespeople, <laughs> to, be, to be frank. HR, like people, sales designers. HR, yeah. And, and in crypto, there's actually a lot more uh, need for women because, and this is like my hypothesis, is because our technology are built on top of communities. Like you can't really run validators without a community. Women are really good at shaping communities and actually making sure that a commodity, that, a, that an ecosystem becomes a community instead of just a pile of code. It's really interesting because if you think about it, big tech, you may have half a more male heavy, sorry, there's a lot of traffic in Mexico City, it's that time of the morning. So you may have had a strong male representation because it was more technical. And once the product exists, it just gets shipped and sold. But with crypto, not only do you have to build a technical layer, which obviously it may still be skewed one way or another. But in order for the technical stack to be adopted and evolve over time, because it becomes like a, like a living mechanism, you need that community component. Right. And that community component then has two phases. One is we can actually grow and nurture the community. And the other one is, by definition, community has a more even split. Yes. And, and, and towards decentralization, this is not just the holders of the tokens, but also the contributors to the protocol, right? The larger DeFi structures have like up, upwards of 800 contributors. There's a, a, a lot of these things are, are, are community-based and community-oriented. And I think women are actually well-placed to actually be in this space. It's just that we do need to, like my gender really doesn't like it. Risk. We're more risk averse. This is born out of statistics, uh, evolutionary biology. It's because we're nurturing. We don't want to get into things that are risky. That's look, sort of look. Someone, someone has to be responsible. Sure, but 
and 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 that's that's why a lot of us didn't go into crypto near the near ecosystem the reason why a lot of people say it's welcoming because it makes it a lot easier for people to get onboarded in a way that is safe and uh, not make mistakes the human readable from the human readable addresses for example of course like the purists would say oh that's why would you dox yourself by creating a, a human readable for example like purists would say that but the thing is it makes it easy for us to know that this is the actually like i'm sending to alejandro because he's avb uh, or decentricity.near or whatever and that's like just one part of it and then the ability to basically recover your account via email for example purists would say that's why would you do that that's what purists would say but you know like if it's if it's uh if you're uh, someone who is like uh, risk averse and you don't want to lose control of your money and you they, you have that option at least you have that option uh, or you don't want, even if you're, you're like, you're already, you're a woman with high OPSEC, like you already use passwords, you use, you use basically a ledger, you list everything, you, you do take care of everything, but you want to onboard your family. Like I onboard my mom, for example. My God, me too. Yeah. She passed the mom test. Yeah. I've got a couple of mining rigs back home and she looks after them. So she knows how to use MetaMask and. Over time, she's been, yeah, she got a couple of airdrops. So she was converted into crypto. It's fascinating to see you break it down because I was thinking something very similar, but in the context of Pagoda, you have a small team who build very powerful infrastructure and now they have removed the complexity to enable more people and more teams to convert. So I guess that once again, like bank women have like lesser representation in like the deep tech writing cryptography fields. But now Nier is enabling people to build further and further up the stack so you can still build a very successful product or project and not have to worry about those issues. Because where is the opportunity? And I guess the signal that we have to put out is blockchain solves problems. Like they are tools that can solve problems for anyone anywhere in the world. So if that is true, then we have to make sure that we're attracting anyone and anywhere in the world who can leverage those tools. That's key. I think that's from the founder's perspective as well as from the people yeah. who are in the space and from the investors. Perspective. It's it's all about if it, if the space is more mature than women, as in women love women also love making money and women also love actually technology and spending money and spending money. It's just that for this, there's there's way too many. It's still women are more risk averse. It's just this is a, like an evolutionary fact. This is something I had to learn in school. It's not sexist though it's my own gender. It's actually pretty good because like when you're, when you're risk averse, you, you, your thoughts are your plant and your strategies are probably better in the long run, in the long term. But with women in the space and women coming into the space, I think it's, it's very, near is very well positioned for that because everything from the onboarding, everything from the UX of like the systems and the, the, the DeFi stuff that we already have, everything is really simplified compared to uh, the other ecosystem. And of course, since we're new. There's still not a lot of, like, there's a lot of applications, true, not, not, not too many, no, not TMI. It's not too crowded. Yeah. I'm very happy. There's obviously a big topic around role models. Sure. I think from a very early age, you can see how kids start developing different role models, mm. which shape their decisions and what subjects they take up in school, if they have choice. And then it, it may just influence like where you want to devote more of your time. So I think yeah. it's really good that we have very strong role models, even, you know, at the New York Foundation and uh, Pagoda, formerly New York Inc. Women are pretty core. We've got from analytics, product management, operations, and yeah, I'm just really happy to have very strong, yes, 
faces at the front of these revolutions, such as you, Reem. I'm looking forward to get more. So Thank moving you. on to the next one, what will be your message for your fellows back at IBM or anyone with a corporate job now, maybe looking for a change, they may be interested in crypto, they may be looking for more meaningful work. Maybe they've got some cash saved up and are looking for a risky new move. <laughs> oh, who was it? The Mac guy. The Steve Jobs. Uh, my God. Would you like to sell bottled cold water for the rest of your life? Sugared water for the rest of your life? Or would you like to change the world? They get that Excellent stuff. line. Sadly, the story did not end up very well. But as far as recruitment goes, <laughs> very good life. <laughs> Do you want to sell for other people forever? Or do you want to sell stuff that you own? Like the ownership situation. I can get rich at IBM. Like I was probably able to basically get at least like com a comfortable life when if I had stayed at IBM, I had a career track, but it would be other people's technologies. And I would be, I would be configuring it. I would be helping people implement it, but I wouldn't own the tech. Even if I developed the tech, IBM owns like 30% of the patents, I think. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't be fully mine. When you actually are ready to basically go on three, you're actually ready to say that, you know what? Uh, I find that ownership of tech structures is more important than working for people who own the tech structures. And this is not we're, just... We're just going to be careful with this line because we'll all be hiring people soon. So they may have a very similar role as they had as IBM insofar as being an employee, but maybe exactly. it's just like the working environment or the nature of the work that they're doing that changes. And I yep. guess a, the other counter argument, if you were an IBM employee with a chunky salary would be, you can go and buy tokens and I guess be more oh, of a passive nice. investor to, to own part of the network. So I guess that, yeah, vocation wise, it's just really interesting to see those drivers and motivations. Ownership is certainly one of them. And I'm very much on the same page as you on that one, but also recognize that as the industry grows, we're going to have more bread and butter employees to have a salary. I guess what I'm trying to say is you're, I, I think this is the future and the other side, the, the side that's actually just collecting users' data and not allowing users to own or co-own the platform, not going to survive. To be frank, this is the era of decentralization. And I'm saying that because like from my recentralization thesis, like it's, we're at extreme centralization currently. So then the needle, the pendulum is bound to turn back. And uh, the turning back of the pendulum is going to be massive now because uh, a lot of people don't trust these structures anymore and they are looking for alternatives. And we're, think of us as the alt tech, like the alternate. So the alternate approach for technology, we think it's a better. It's a little bit shady. There is a risky association there with other kind of outs, but we'll open it for now, see how we go. <laughs> So we had women coming into blockchain. We had corporate world. And I forgot what the third one was. Oh, yes. Developing countries. countries. Third world countries. Developing countries are, honestly, I think regarding developing countries, the reason I'm so well positioned to create all of these projects, actually, one of the key differentiations that I have as a tech company, as a development house, a group of developers or whatever, is that we're in a third world country and everything's cheap. It's a lot cheaper to actually have our skills, like our skill sets uh, be utilized. And we have, we're on par with a lot of developers out there. It's just that we're a lot cheaper. So that's actually one thing. Like the, and this is like just basic economics. And this is not just true for Indonesia, Vietnam people, I don't know other countries, but like in my region of the world, that's actually 
that's a good rebalancer. And I think that's a really important qualifier because a lot of people think of, oh, you've got cheap labor as if you're exploiting people. But we have to understand it's a great rebalancer because it's a really yeah. healthy way for capital to flow into the region and to right. enable people to earn above average incomes. And obviously that money flows into the economy and so hopefully they're getting nicer houses, the kids to go to schools, they're driving a better car so they can be stuck in traffic and something more comfortable. <laughs> so it's, I think it's actually healthy to have more of that money flowing into other regions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the way we work right now with all the, we're all doing this digitally. So it's actually easier to actually work from home. This actually opens up opportunities to a lot of people who are, Indonesia has 30,000 islands and far-flung regions. And uh, we, we don't have developers in all 30,000 islands, but we have a lot of developers that are not just in Jakarta, basically. That's like the other thing. And I'm, I'm also interested in the way we access things. Like a lot of uh, people in developing regions access uh, the internet through their phones, not through their laptops. Their main devices are mobile. And uh, I think what is very interesting with Near is that you can access it from a browser on your mobile device and very easily. And that's, I think that's key. I think that's uh, something that um, honestly not even Polkadot has. Uh, you uh, just that level of access, that level of access to DeFi, that level of access to all of the things that are on Near is very cool. That's actually huge. I do Denver, I think it's hilarious because they were giving all the people as they registered a, a QR code that had some tokens on the Arbitrum network that you can redeem. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. it's Arbitrum testnet because yeah. Arbitrum mainnet, it was too expensive to use. And then with the tokens, you can claim uh, food from food trucks. And it was, it was really interesting. I guess I've never done crypto on my phone because I just don't think it's secure. I do it in my computer. I've got 2FA, cold, sto cold storage. It's fascinating what you're saying because it shows you how dangerous it is to have a very limited sample size because that same thinking of nobody does crypto meaningfully on their phone has probably locked out a lot of people that can only use their phones. And if the infrastructure and mobile phones, it's not there, then yeah, there's a big gap to fill. So it's a really interesting point that you bring up and hopefully more people listen. Yeah, people should listen. That's, that's why Reality Chain Mobile, because we want to develop it into a platform that we can build stuff like DeFi Kingdom. So like not DeFi Kingdoms per se, but like a, something similar that you can, it's a gamified platform that can you can do DeFi on and that you can play it on your phone. And uh, Myriad is also going to go towards mobile access. So that's something we're trying to do. I heard that you guys are adding near Luckin to Octopus application we're adding near logins to myriad manually at the moment. to myriad it's to myriad yeah, yeah because i did the myriad i guess product demo showcase it was testing it just before the the token sale or during the token sale and i must confess i spent a couple of hours just like reading documentation and doing things before the demo and mm -hmm. the pocket.js was a, a bit of a you know it threw me off a little bit it's interesting to see how all this infrastructure keeps colliding and evolving and I'm a huge fan of near luggage. So thank you, Ilya. And I know you're listening. <laughs> Let's push yep. near luggage to more places. We're trying to do it. We're trying to teach the other app chains to do it as the near logins and integrate it to the app chains. I'm guessing it's relatively simple given that Octopus it's on near, like like smart contract on near. I'm not going to get it because it was asset transfers. It doesn't provide like smart contract interoperability between like app chain and yeah, so, so it's different from Aurora in that sense, fair enough.
Because with, with Metapool, we just launched staking from Aurora directly. Mm. So without leaving Aurora from MetaMask, the user can deposit Rapnir. And then oh, the Metapool smart contract automatically sends a Rapnir down the rainbow bridge, unwraps it, deposits on the staking validators near Mina, gets a senior, and then sends it back up to Aurora. And I also know that Ref is doing something similar, leveraging the rainbow bridge to basically aggregate liquidity from Aurora DEXs down to Ref. So technically, if a user is using Ref and there's better pricing on Aurora, it executes all the calls to prove the money down, perform the, it's going to be bonkers. It's going to be hard. Uh, it makes sense that you guys are focusing on that so we can set on the a lot of liquidity. Um, so you can pull that down. Yeah. Yes. So in theory, you can also do contract calls on Ethereum, which may be a very just valid proposition for DAOs setting up a near, which is much mm. cheaper to run as a governance tool. And then if you vote on something that has a contract call there, like a function, mm -hmm. it can yeah. execute over the bridge on an ETH. That's interesting. The chain would love to actually to use that, actually, because we should talk to talk to James, because he's like the, the Dow's dad, uh, James Wall. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so he's very active now with community Dow, just trying to get as many people exposed uh, to the infra. We actually had a demo Dow demo day today, just to showcase what some of the people are building. But I think that once again, there's always like business innovation, like what you do with your DAO and then there's technological innovation and that's being able to contract calls over the bridge. So yeah, definitely reach out to him. As far, well, as, I understand, as, far as I understand it, the only buyer at the moment would basically be uh, the cost of the contract call over to Ethereum. It's just more expensive, but if it makes sense for your organization, then yeah, go for it. I'd love to see more projects do it. Sure. All right. Thank you. Closing round, do you have any favorite books or movies that you would recommend to people? Everyone you see reads Snow Crash, uh, where the Jeremy Renner started. But not only Snow Crash, a lot of the things that Neil Stevens amazing. There's this really short story called The Simulian Keeper, which actually preceded Bitcoin, but like predicted Bitcoin in 1995. It was a short story about a digital currency that is decentralized and the government tries to control it. That's also interesting. I am also a huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of Psych. I'm a huge fan of Psych. And I'm a huge fan of Neil Stevenson as well. So I have. My other thing would be Cryptonomicon is also a very good novel and it's a fun read as well. I just noticed I'm giving out only the, the, the fiction stuff, but like I also read nonfiction. I'm currently reading this. Going wrong. Search for the origins of COVID-19. And wow. this is actually a very good book. Alina Chan and Matt Ridley. Matt Ridley is, has been writing about biology, bioinformatics for a while. Another really good book that he has is Red Queen, and uh, that's all about evolutionary biology as it relates to gender selection. It's also really cool. This is actually quite interesting. It has nothing to do with blockchain. It's a teaming universe. It's an extraterrestrial field guide. It's a biological, but it's like a biology textbook, but it's about fictional worlds. Fictional, they have planets, like they simulate what a planet would look like if it had three suns. It is Geek what? Supreme. I love it. <laughs> I know. I know. And it keeps us like the biological tenets. I'm so curious. Have you always been that passionate about science and into geeky stuff? Were yes. you like popular in school? Did you have friends with the same interests? No, I, I wasn't. Ah. 
That's yeah, I read a lot of books. I like reading good. books. Because I think, honestly, right now we're going to experience, or we are experiencing in a way, like the revenge of the geeks. Because a lot of us mm-hmm. grew up with what would we call like weird interests as a kid. Mm-hmm. You're interested in things that maybe adults were interested in, or you ask questions and you want to find out about things that you didn't really have to or meant to. <laughs> but now that we are making money by using this knowledge and, 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 and it's exploring the curiosity and that we're able to connect with each other. Yep. It's, it's going to be an interesting decade of more and more kids being able to have more role models. If you think of somebody like Vitalik, he looks the way he thinks. <laughs> and that is a compliment. So I think that if you are the weird kid at school now, age 13, you hopefully don't feel as isolated as before. Now you can be like, yeah, I want to be weird as fuck and be a tail fellow. And most likely they're teaching themselves how to code and they're probably collaborating to some of the open source projects that we use. So it's a, it's an exciting time to be alive, I guess. It's an exciting time to be, yeah, to be a kid, to be a geeky kid. Yeah. Lovely. So you're in Miami now. Do you have any plans to move around for the rest of the year? I choose where to go based on events. So I'm still going to go to, I think there's an NFT event in Miami and there's another crypto event in Miami. So I'm just going to be sticking here for the next few months. But NFT NYC is going to be in June. I'm trying to get into that. And so I'll be in New York, June, and I'm uh, probably going to go back to Indonesia around July. And I'm thinking of going to Dubai. This is not confirmed. Like I'm thinking of going to Dubai around November because there's a, like a health event um, by the Emirates, by the government, basically there. So yeah, I'm moving around. Based on defense. Would you consider yourself a digital nomad? I would consider myself very much so a digital Yes, yes. Lovely. Well, I, I would love to extend the invitation to Dev Connect in Colombia, happening okay. later this year. And I just got some alpha that if Mexico has been also confirmed for August. Awesome. Okay. So there's a lot happening in the region. The food is delicious. Everything's affordable. People are friendly. And I think that this is one of those regions that people's pain point is stronger. So as we present it with the technology, they're much more open-minded, happy to embrace it, both as users, but I guess that naturally there may be some opportunities for some to go in as professionals and investors. We're actually doing a lot of work with near education, the near certified boot camps through New Hispano. We now have courses in Spanish. We're now training professors at universities. So there's a lot happening in the region. And yeah, if you have flexibility to travel. We'd love to host you here. Sure. When, when is it going to be? I'll send you the dates and I'll put the links on the show notes as well. Yay. Uh, All right. But yeah, if, if you're in Miami by then, it's like a short flight as well, which is a massive bonus. Yeah. Hando, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for being the first guest as we kickstart the podcast again. Having you and the Octopussy has been amazing. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to catch up very soon. We will be continuing conversations around uh, creating a biohacker contingent for DeepIO. I think they could be a very good early adopter group. There's a strong overlap between like biohackers, non-conformists, crypto. So I think, yeah, let's unleash the next stage of growth with them. All right. Thanks so much for Thank joining. You. And I'll leave it when it goes live. Thank you so much. Okay. You take yeah. care.